Medicine's whole role is the preservation of life. My job as a doctor is to alleviate their suffering. It's not to be a vending machine when they make a good rational argument that they'd be better off dead. And want to be able to say, well, you know, I want to live the best life as long as I can until I can't any longer. Hastening death through doctor-assisted suicide, a tragedy for some, a necessity for others whose suffering is too intolerable to bear. Today on Context, the ongoing controversy over changes to the medical assistance in dying bill or MAID. Plus, special guests tell us why assisted living, not dying, is what we should be demanding. And a report that goes deep to the heart of the issue, who are you? Reaffirming human dignity, that's all ahead. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing his new cabinet for Canada's 43rd Parliament. The tough job of justice minister remains with law professor David Lametti. A lot on Minister Lametti's plate, who among other justice issues is on a time deadline to make Canada's assisted dying law less restrictive. A Quebec Superior Court ruling declared the requirements in our current euthanasia law as unconstitutional. The court ruled that the existing legislation, that natural death must be reasonably foreseeable before granting assistance assistance to death needs to be changed. The federal government has until March 2020 to make amendments to broaden the law and make medical assistance in dying more accessible. Currently, people need to meet four requirements to access medical assistance in dying. Have a serious incurable illness or disability, be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability, have physical or psychological suffering, and natural death must be foreseeable. It's that last qualification, keeping death as imminent, that has been ruled as being too restrictive. Today, we look into the ramifications of making assisted death a quicker access. Reverend Dr. Andrew Bennett with CARDIS has studied human dignity and he joins us now to help us understand this. So you, Andrew, have first saying to understand assisted dying, to understand the debate around assisted dying, to understand the interest, the passion for assisted dying, we first need to understand actually what human dignity is. And the Supreme Court actually defined this. How did they define human dignity? Well, it's interesting, Lorna, because the Supreme Court has shifted on this question. If we look at the Rodriguez decision, which was an earlier decision on questions of assisted dying, it was basically, um, um, we could say, rejected uh, by the Carter decision. Now, in the Carter decision that has led to the assisted dying bill, or the euthanasia bill, let's be more specific, um, is this idea that human dignity is somehow based on radical autonomy, on individual freedom. It's this idea that I, as a human being, have the most dignity when I am fully autonomous, when I am fully able to choose what I want to do with my life, with my body. And that's a very different understanding about human dignity from what uh, Christians believe. Okay, so what is the other side of the definition of human dignity if it is not radical, personal autonomy? So as human beings, we believe as Christians that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And so the incarnation informs how we understand ourselves as human persons. So as human persons, we have a radical dignity that is centered on our personhood. And to have human dignity means that we have something that is internal. It's not about external propriety. It's not about whether I have a particular disability. That doesn't diminish my dignity. My dignity is not diminished if I'm not as strong intellectually as someone else, or I'm not as good at sports as someone else, 
or if I'm in suffering a grave illness, I still have dignity because my dignity is within. And our dignity is something that is given to us by God. It's imprinted upon us uh, in our human person. But Andrew, the argument is that's fine for you religious folks. You don't have to choose assisted dying. I want to choose assisted dying because I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in your definition of dignity. What's wrong with that? Well, dignity is not only based on a religious definition. I think all of us as human beings know that there's something about us. There's something about our humanity that is very uh, unique. It's different from other animals in the world. Uh, because human beings desire meaning. Human beings desire to know themselves and to be in relationship with other people. So when someone says that um, it's, I don't have dignity when I'm suffering, I don't have dignity when I'm dying, is actually a backwards understanding of dignity. In fact, when you are dying or when you're suffering, you do have great dignity still. And in that suffering, you are showing to those around you who you in, you're in community with as a human person, you're showing them what suffering means. And they can, in turn, respond with compassion, yeah. with forbearance, uh, with perseverance. But Canada has a loneliness problem. And a lot of people making this decision, and it might be as high as 14,000 people in the last three years have chosen to end their lives through medical assistance and dying, saying, I don't want to trust myself or be a burden to the community around me. Or maybe I don't have a community. What about that? Well, I think the issue of social isolation or loneliness is a reflection of this other understanding of dignity that the Supreme Court has embraced, this radical autonomy that I am radically sovereign. I, am, I have this individual power to choose. And if that's the case, then we're gonna start bumping into one another because we're all gonna say, well, don't, don't infringe upon my freedom to choose because you're infringing upon my dignity. And that is a recipe for isolation. It's a recipe for the breakdown of community. And we're seeing this uh, in our society today. And so how then do we reaffirm our genuine human dignity. And it has to be grounded within community because in reaching uh, into the lives of one another, we encounter each other and we see that there is someone else, another person who has hopes and dreams like I do, who has struggles like I do. And in that community, we come more fully into contact with our personhood and what it means to be a person. Okay, Andrew. This is a big topic. It sure is. It addresses many factors, and I think all of us would do ourselves a favor to read your paper, Who Am I? So Reverend Andrew Bennett, author of the newly released Cardis Report, Who Are You? Reaffirming Human Dignity. That link is on our website, because it's, it's a read, but it's worth it. And so uh, learn about this, because it's shaping our children, it's shaping our grandchildren, as we make these autonomous decisions. I'm very alarmed about it, but thank you for your paper. And for the rest of you, stay with us. In a moment, we'll talk with a person who says that medical assistance in dying is a violation of the rights of people with disabilities. That's next. And Taylor Hyatt is one of those who believes that MAID is a violation of the rights of people with disabilities. Taylor works as a board member, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. We reach her in Ottawa. Thank you for joining us. So Taylor, why do you think MAID is a violation of the rights of people with disabilities? Um, to, to start with, um, it's discriminatory. 
someone without a disability or health condition would be offered suicide prevention. But if it's recognized that you have a disability, um, it, your, your life is considered too hard and oh, there's, there's no way to, to make your life better, therefore you should just end it. People's problems are blamed on their disability or their need for supports like a cane, a walker, a hearing aid, human assistance, and um, people with disabilities in their suicidality are crying out for help and um, being uh, directed to a way to make their suicide attempt successful. So Taylor, what would you add to the law? Two things. Um, um, one, one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, um, one thing that sticks out to me right away is that the person must be informed of their other options, um, whether that's receiving palliative care or supports to live in the community, but that doesn't help the person when you tell them, hey, this service exists, but if the doctor says, but I don't know whether you can have it or how to get it to you, you're, you're dangling a carrot in front of them and then you can't do anything in a concrete way to help them um, want to continue living. And what would be the other? Um, um, I've, I've got plenty here. Um, Definitely, a ch um, the change in the wording that, that I might have already mentioned, where a grievous and irremediable condition is what renders you eligible, and then a sub-definition of that is that disability is called out as one of the undesirable um, circumstances where, where you might want to take advantage of this law. Well, Taylor Hyatt, board member of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, thank you so much for your great work. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Anne. Well, our next guest lives with cerebral palsy, but that hasn't stopped her from achieving a double master's in divinity and social work from Wilfrid Laurier University. Chantelle Hunick, I'm so delighted you're back on set. Uh, we shouldn't visit only when we have to talk about this difficult issue of medical assistance in dying, which last time you came, the law was just about to be passed, and here we are now. Uh, Quebec court has ruled the law is too restrictive. It needs to be expanded. How do you feel about this? Well, I'm, I'm worried as a woman with physical disabilities in Canada. Um, from my perspective, I lead a very fulfilling life, but it is sometimes difficult for me to convince medical professionals and others about that. And I worry that people uh, who suffer from various illnesses or disabilities could be choosing medical assistance in dying prematurely because they fear being declared incompetent or that it might get too late for them to choose that option. Um, you do feel, Chantel, that we've opened a, a very dangerous option in our culture and that is um, that, that instead of persisting in community care around people with disabilities, we're going to be encouraging a culture 
that says, no, maybe you should end early, but do you have any evidence that this is happening? So if my condition were ever to worsen um, to the point where I question my own ability to persevere, it would be dangerous for a medical professional um, in Canada to suggest to me that if I had what you had, then I would opt for medical assistance in dying. And unfortunately, I know that this is happening in the current discourse. Um, as a chaplain, I have had opportunities to walk with folks who have chosen medical assistance in dying and their families and the medical professionals who believed that they were doing the right thing in assisting them in this way. And I have witnessed the post-traumatic stress that occurs afterwards when they question whether or not they have truly done the right thing. It's not a discussion that's going away. And you, you have a fascinating role. You, you, you instruct for spiritual care for people with disabilities, staff workers, hospital chaplain, school counselor. You juggle these three part-time jobs. How much education do you think is getting through about caregiving and letting and elevating uh, people's quality of life in this discussion on dying? Well, popular discourse as promoted by movies such as Breathe and Me Before You suggests that even if people with disabilities lead very fulfilling lives, eventually they'll reach a point where they no longer want to live. And I don't think that's true, but it certainly leads to popular support for legislation such as MABE. As we are in this stage right now where the new justice minister will have to be crafting an expanded law for medical assistance in dying, um, we have Robert Latimer asking for a full pardon of his conviction of killing his 12-year-old daughter who had cerebral palsy like you do. Um, that case shaped you. How? I was 10 when uh, Robert Latimer killed his daughter. and. Um, from that point on, I asked my mom questions such as, do you think I should die or will you kill me someday? Um, and I don't worry about that so much from my mom's perspective anymore because she knows, like you said, the things that I've achieved and the fulfilling life that I lead. But um, now I have to worry about whether or not a medical professional, professional is going to think that I would be better off dead. And, so what do we need to do? So you as a disabled community, we've got another group of letters that represent 70 different groups of people with disabilities who feel their lives are at risk as we expand medical assistance in dying. What do you need us to do as, as society? Well, I can tell you that if an able-bodied person walks into the hospital and says, I want to die, they're immediately put on suicide watch. In contrast, if a person with a disability or an illness walks into the hospital and says, I want to die, they say, okay, we'll do that for you in two weeks. Um, like I said, um, if my condition were ever to worsen to the point where I question my ability to persevere, the option to stop persevering isn't going to help me with my ability to persevere. All right. So you're saying the very nature of caregiving has to be one that's always reaching for life, I not believe, offering the assistance to die. I believe so, yes. And I can say that from a very articulate 
perspective because God has given me the gift of articulate speech. But um, there are many people with various disabilities affected in various ways, such as those who perseverate on certain options because of autism or developmental disability, who, if given the option um, of medical assistance in dying, might think that that becomes their only option and might get stuck there. And so, unduly, choose that option. Your caregiver, who was uh, with you from the um, uh, public relations standpoint, said, workers at Christian Horizon, as they take people to hospital care, are always asked if a person with a disability has a DNR. I wouldn't be asked that if I came in with a condition at a hospital emergency ward. Right. But you feel that that climate's already out there. We've, we've experienced it on many occasions in various hospitals throughout Ontario. All right. Chantelle, thank you for the warning. Thank you for helping us listen to your concerns and the community you represent. Thank you. Will this also apply to patients with psychiatric disorders? Will this also apply to patients with Alzheimer's disease? Will this even apply to patients with advanced Alzheimer's disease? Will this apply to babies? Will this apply to children? Well, some of the opponents in this life and death discussion are doctors themselves. Certain physicians say assisting or giving medical assistance in dying goes against their conscience rights. They want those rights protected. Larry Worthen joins us from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. So Larry, why in your opinion are doctors' conscience rights important in this highly charged issue? Well, it's a matter of life and death, and our doctors are pledged to support the lives of their patients. We just cannot, we cannot be allow, allow ourselves to be forced to be participate in the, in the killing of a patient. Bill 207, it's known as the conscience rights bill in Alberta, is being seen as discriminatory by a lot of people in the pro-euthanasia group. What do you think? Well, it's, it can't be discriminatory because uh, our concerns are not with people, with, but with procedures. We'll accept any patient. We just simply ask that we not be forced to participate in procedures that result in the patient's death. Can you give me your best explanation as to exactly what conscience rights are when it comes to the medical profession? Well, we have a responsibility to always act in the best interest of our patients. Uh, when it comes to killing patients, we feel that that's just not in their best interests. And our rights, our conscience rights, are based on our religious beliefs, on our commitment to the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, but we just simply are, are, are asked, we're asking that uh, people will not force us to actually be involved in the process of terminating a patient's life. Okay, so the rights of doctors and patients' rights as well, can there be a balance struck at some level? Absolutely. Um, there is a balance currently in Alberta. Uh, it's one of the most balanced jurisdictions in Canada. This legislation is just going to simply protect the status quo from any changes by the regulators down the road. Okay, Larry Worthen, thank you so much. Executive Director of the Christian Medical and Dental Association joining us from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Thank you.
Thanks, Anne. Celebrating life with all of its ups and downs is what L'Arche Daybreak does. Women and men with intellectual disabilities and those who assist them living together in a dynamic community. Our producer, Susan Ponting, spoke with a member whose gifts are many and whose sense of humor would melt the hearts of the grumpiest among us. My Gab is a good, good friend. Marianne is a force to reckon with. She's an incredible presence. She really knows who she is. One of her greatest gifts in our community has been her capacity to walk with people through a uh, passage of death, actually. I suspect there's a connection between the fact that she lost her mom when she was seven and had to live that at a very young age. You talk about your mom being your angel right. and that she's always with you, right? right. In our community, uh, Marianne, uh, when we have a wake, if somebody's passed away, Marianne has no hesitation. She'll walk up to the person and she strokes their hair. She holds their hand. Remember when Aunt Norma died, it was a hard time for her family, right? right. And people were really struggling. And there was a lot of tension that was surfaced, right, between family members. And at the funeral, I think it was really hard for people to connect with their loss of their mom. Yeah, and do you remember what you said to Aunt Norma? What did you say to her? Hey, don't be afraid. I'm here now. And when you give communion to someone, the first thing you do is you give people an experience of communion. When you see somebody and you notice maybe that they have a new shirt on, That's right. or they have a new pair of pants, That's right. or they've just had their nails done, you'll say, hey, nice shirt, body of Christ. Good voice. Don't be afraid, Wendy. There seems to be a deep wisdom in Marianne. Yeah, and it's, it takes time and relationship to reveal that because on the surface, right, Marianne uh, to the world, right, doesn't possess the gifts of the world. Look at shoes. Look at I think it's up. You're talking about the lighting person? Oh my God, for you, cupcake. <laughs> I see that humor is a very big and important part of your life. It's one of your gifts. I love my gift. You are my gift. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne. Well, still ahead, while our society seems to constantly be bracing for the next catastrophic event, maybe growing older and aging doesn't mean that we don't still have purpose in life. Medicine's whole role is the preservation of life. And the key thing that we need to develop in a modern caring world is palliative care, which means whatever one is going through, there must be a way of meeting their needs and bringing healing not knocking them off because we can't do it. That was Canon Andrew White, a medical background of his own, suffering with cerebral palsy, and he's also the vicar of Baghdad. So, here with us now, Jean Wisner, a community care volunteer, 
lived with, cared for people who are close to that palliative state. Jean, thank you. Why, I've never actually heard of this before in church life. You guys have nine community groups out of your church that go to the most elderly, the most isolated in seniors' homes. Why? Well, because there is a definite need in that area that uh, it doesn't matter what stage you are in life, that you need encouragement and you need um, quality of life. And um, we go in there, we go in there to give them hope. Uh, often they question um, uh, what's tomorrow for them. So there is a future for them. We go in and we encourage them and let them know that um, they still have a purpose. Let's talk a little bit about that, encouraging people that they have a purpose. Absolutely. Because this conversation about medical assistance in dying expanding across Canada, the, the law opening up to be broader, the worry is um, that people aren't feeling they have a purpose to face a future with suffering. Explain why that that there actually is purpose in that. Well, there's definitely purpose in that, and it doesn't matter what stage of life we're in, and they do have a purpose. Um, we go in. Uh, there are folks there who, when we finish our morning, they come and encourage us. They thank us. We encourage them. Uh, there's some spark about putting life against life. Absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, they will thank us or that we've triggered something. Uh, I had a gentleman come up to me and said, I'm going to call my family and I am going to talk to them because I understand now that maybe it's my turn to talk to them and not expecting them always to bless me. And so we, we try to put purpose and encourage them to have purpose in their life, to be a whole person. What concerns you about this conversation Canada is having about medical assistance in dying? We've got over 14,000 people have used it reportedly. Um, it's expanding in Canada. What concerns you as a community volunteer working with the forgotten, working with those in shut-in situations? I think for myself, I have just recently, unfortunately, I um, lost a brother-in-law and his wife, my sister, had a brain aneurysm five years ago this month. She recovered wonderful, but her short-term memory has never recovered. However, she still has, she still has a lot to give in this life. She, she's retired from a profession. So um, it concerns me that someone would decide that because her short-term memory is, is limited, that, that she has no more, nothing else to give in life. Okay? I think the discussion is no one's going to make that decision for her, but for people who say, I want to start that in my life. I want to end my life. Does it affect a community of caring or not? I think the idea of the community of caring when someone expresses that is to work with them to let them know that they still have purpose. And that would be my, my way of looking at that, is to encourage them that they still have purpose. Um, there's still something for them to give in life. All right. Nine years of volunteering like this. Thank you. I hope people get inspired and just start spreading that kind of community care. It's fabulous. It, it's one of the most rewarding areas that you can ever volunteer in. Thank you. We'll be back with my wrap right after this. Well, for the wrap today, I thought we needed another word from Chantelle Hunick, who challenges us that protest isn't the way to medical assistance in dying. There's a different way. Chantelle, what is it? 
Romans 12:15 alerts us to the fact that the strongest communities are defined by those who laugh with those who laugh, mourn with those who mourn. If we want to provide a different way, we need to be willing to come alongside folks who are feeling hopeless before they've reached the end of the rope and show them that their life is not only about what they have or what they can do, but how we are better together. Sounds like something Jesus would do. Thanks, Chantelle. Thanks so much. It's a big topic. Lots more on our website at Context Beyond the Headlines. Thanks for watching us today and learning with us. That was great. That was our full show that's posted every Thursday on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the notification bell to get our weekly episodes and web exclusives.